Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like him. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Presented by OnX Hunt, creators of the most comprehensive digital mapping system for hunters. Download the Hunt app from the iTunes or Google Play Store. Know where you stand with OnX. Doug, you'll be able to relate to this story. A uh, guy wrote in. And he got his uh, got his nipple pierced. And I'm not sure how I'm going to be able to relate to this story. That's just a joke I stole from Brian Callen. Where if you're telling someone a story that has, you tell them a story that has really like in a group, in a crowd, right? You'll tell like some like perverse story, and you'll say like, "Oh, you know, Billy, this will <laughs> you'll appreciate this, Bill." And then you tell like some story, and people are like later they're like, "Why would you know?" So that's why I wanted to correct it right away. <laughs> so a guy gets his nipple pierced, and he writes in about it, and he's out shooting his bow. You can imagine where this is going, right? Oh, God. Oh. Yeah. Very painful. I'm not sure that's something I'd be writing in about. No. Well, we've been talking about oh. stuff, people getting – it started off with hunting, scars. And gal rode in to say she had jumped a jumped a barbed wire fence once Going and, dove and hunting. ripped her nipple. And Horribly. Then, and then the ripple nipping nipple ripping stories have come in, have mm. rolled in. Yeah. She was jumping a fence to go dove hunting. And yeah, we told the whole story. Anyways, and then she had made a joke about how her husband had later she said my husband called that one Scarface. And then other people wrote in, um, just nipple ripping stories. Catches for you people that are slower to take. He gets his nipple pierced. That's one like. <laughs> that's one I just. I mean, God bless, right? But I just don't. Just not. Not on my. Go, not would, on my list. I would not go on my there list. before I went tongue piercing. Oh yeah, for sure. But if you wrote down all the things you could get pierced in a list, and I had to start like from the top, and I didn't mm-hmm. know when it would end, I would that one would be real low, real low, on my list. Um, but he catches it on his bowstring, 
right? Uh, I would, I would, if that happened to me, I would say that it happened, Doug. You'd keep it secret? No, I would say it. Publicly? Yeah. Like, I don't know how to say this, but in the last few years, <laughs> but I, uh, I've increased, I've, I've never been, I've never, I've, ne- I've never been like reluctant to publicize when I do something stupid, but it's gotten to the point where I really want it out there. It's like a kind of a form of ma- masochism. Yeah. Well, like, no, it's you dumb motherfucker. You people are going to know about this too, you know? Yeah. It's, maybe it's like some kind of form of like self-betterment, like Well, I think it's I think it's helpful too because the worst thing you can be is a blowhard. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. If you are a gen- generally competent person, and you, it's like under promising over delivering. And if you're very vocal about what you've screwed up, but you are generally competent, it's only going to do good for you. And I have found that when I have like contractor, a contractor over, I said there's a plumbing problem is beyond me to figure out. If I have a contractor over and I say, you know, I'm such a dumbass when it comes to this, right? It just makes the whole thing go better than if you're in there acting, acting like, like you've you know, all yeah. but got it solved. Right, right. <laughs> Do you right. know what I mean? Right. You're also putting yourself in a position to learn a little bit more probably yeah. too. Speak of things then, it's good stories you could tell to the world and kind of get it, you know, you're going to team Matt up on a... Oh, on a, on I, I, a got, <laughs> I, I, I saw a picture, but I didn't really oh, get okay. the story. Yeah, no, uh, that's... Kind of where I was going with this. So, oh, yeah, shooting this your bow is, out of your own window? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so this is, yeah, this is me putting on sackcloth and ashes right here. Uh, <laughs> is that a biblical reference? Mm-hmm. What part of the Bible? I don't know. Isn't it appearing Sat- multiple? Sackcloth? Sackcloth. Sack. And ashes. And then also, I think it's all, I think it's in several places in the Old Testament. And I, I think that, when one is wearing sackcloth and ashes, they're, they're, it was a stupid way. It wasn't the right usage because it's usually you're repenting for something. Isn't, you're not is repenting it, isn't wearing for a hair shirt? Stupid. Isn't I'm wearing a hair like, shirt in the Bible? I don't know. Oh. When Usually when somebody's wearing sackcloth and putting ashes on their face, they're, they're also gnashing their teeth. That seems to be. My boy does that, my four year old. I have a llama that does it. Yeah. I think oh. that nipple piercing just got replaced by uh, sackcloth and ashes. You know, you know where this is going, is you're going to tell the... the yeah. So, but, but first I got to ask, you have a llama shirt on right now. Mm-hmm. Somebody gave me this. It's a little tight on me. So it but. says Wikipedia fact number 58,801. Llamas like to wrestle. Yeah. yeah. You like that shirt? I don't know. Okay, go on. So what happened? <laughs> um... They do like to wrestle, though. Oh, they do? Oh, my God. Oh, I thought I was just being stupid and cute. No. Oh, they like to wrestle. Yeah, sometimes I go out in my pasture and break it up because I'm afraid one of them's going to get hurt. Really? What is a llama? You <laughs> 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 here, here, Doug. What was, what was your thing about farm wrestling? <laughs> well, 
Duck threatened. Was, <laughs> duck was, right. You duck was farm wrestle you? Duck <laughs> was threatened to farm wrestle someone. It was a typo. It was, was it? No, no, it was him. He 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 was he was interested. I was like, I don't know what that is, but I don't want it to happen. <laughs> He wanted something from me, and I said, well, I'll arm wrestle you for it. But I, I, I think I spoke oh, into my phone, but, and oh, it said farm wrestling oh, instead. Okay. And he goes, well, I'm not I sure. I never mind, you can have it. <laughs> <laughs> farm, farm wrestle. <laughs> anyway, so there you are, playing with your bow and arrow. Yeah, so <laughs> I, um, I uh, was shooting out of my house this winter because it was bitter cold. You know, and I, but I wanted to kind of keep up on the shooting a little bit. So I op was opening up the window and shooting out the window. And, uh, I went out to fetch my arrows and I had an idea while I was out there. I was like, man, I cannot see my pins very good inside the house. So I went out into the garage and got a, got my headlamp and was, uh, zip tying it to my sight pin. And then I got back in. It was, you know, things a little bright, you know. So <laughs> I was, uh, you know, I was like, there was a lot going on, and I, I freaking forgot that I'd closed the window. <laughs> the window. Did you hit the target? I never found that arrow. It took me a few seconds to even realize what happened. I was like, what? The you hell? thought someone the string just break? Like, <laughs> like someone just <laughs> shot me <laughs> through my window. Um, here, uh, another quick thing. I was just reading, I'm, I'm reading a book. Oh, you know, uh, Randall, you'll appreciate this. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> you'll appreciate it for real. Remember I was recently asking you about the historian, Elliot West. Mm -hmm. And I was, cause I'm enjoying his book so mm -hmm. much. His like, a collection of his essays. Yep. One of which is an essay that really counters the idea that Lewis and Clark had discovered, you know, from a European perspective, mm -hmm. had discovered the like the Great Plains, right? And he goes on to explain at the time of Lewis and Clark's um, journey, there were Indians on the Great Plains who had been to Europe, met yeah. the King of France, and returned home. Yeah, at the time of the Lewis and Clark expedition. So. You forwarded me that story a long time ago. I know. Well, I went and got the book that that piece. Uh, oh, it was a podcast of... listener that sent that that essay in. Uh huh. And I went and got the whole book, and then I was trying to, and I wanted to get the dope on Elliot West. So I asked Randall what Elliot West's reputation was, and he told me about Elliot West's reputation. Then I get the book, and I'm reading, and there's a piece about the difficult job of a historian to uncover the unheard voices in history, mm -hmm. meaning that we follow like, oh, Lewis and Clark, right? And we know all these monumentous things, but like the, the details of people's lives and people that weren't spoken for, right? People whose recollections aren't like, like he talks about the paucity of, of accounts from Chinese immigrants who worked in the mines, right? They were mm -hmm. just, they didn't, leave a written history. So now you're trying to like find these forgotten voices. And in there, he's talking about this guy and his brother that are going out to the California gold rush and they're leaving the East coast, going to the California gold rush by boat. So presumably going all the way around Patagonia at the time, right? Mm -hmm. There's no Panama canal. Correct. Yeah. 
his brother dies on the way. So there's two brothers, they leave, and his brother dies on the way. And he gets a barrel of brandy and packs his brother into a barrel of brandy, the dead body. Packs into a barrel of brandy, gets to California, and to bury his brother at home, promptly sets out on an overland journey with the, bar- the brother packed in the barrel of brandy to bring him back home again. He's so intent on bringing his brother home. Why, why was it wow. easier to do that? And then if he opted to do the ocean one, do you have uh, a bunch of stuff with him He or doesn't something? explain that, and I haven't dug into the footnotes to find where he pulled that story from, but I don't understand why. I was like, let's go. You know, this way. One way. Maybe they were moving land. a bunch of, maybe they were moving stuff, and he left the stuff, and it was quicker to mm. pack them in brandy. Just wanted to change the scenery. Yep. Um, a couple other things I wanted to touch on real quick. A guy rode in, he's fishing, and his brother hooks into a, they're fishing on the East Coast. Where were they fishing? They're fishing off Maine. And his brother hooks into a, Big fish. No, uh, oh, I'll appreciate this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hooks into a 14-foot blue shark, and they're just fighting it for the fun of it. And it's a strenuous fish fight. They let the shark go. A couple days later, he develops this horrible pain in his chest. Can't figure out what it is. Thinks he pulled a muscle. Can't figure out what it gets worse and worse. Pain goes to a doctor. And he's got this tumor that he didn't know about and would have killed him. And somehow fighting that fish. Aggravated tweaked it. Tweaked something and that tumor pressed up against a nerve and alerted him to the presence of that tumor. And they removed the tumor. Now he's fine. Moral of the story, go fishing. You got to fish more. With your brother. Finally, here's here's one last one before we start, uh, before we get some more stuff. Um, guy uh, takes his dad turkey hunting. His dad's sentimental type. Takes his dad turkey hunting. They his dad gets a turkey and he gives the kid the fan because he wants the fan mounted. The guy's dog destroys it. I think it was his dog. Destroys it. Wife's dog. Oh, you saw this story? Mm-hmm. Wife's dog destroyed. Like, like, what's the difference between your dog and your wife's dog? Oh, I think it's just, I think it's the same as if. Nothing until it, you get divorced. It's the same. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's the same thing as if you tie the tuna to your girlfriend's car. <laughs> no, my girlfriend's dog. No one says my wife. I guess they do. No, but we, you know what I'm saying? Like, at a point. We have two dogs. My dog is the good one. My wife's dog is the bad one. <laughs> Really? Yeah. And it's like the wife's dog, my wife's yeah, dog. Yeah, she decided to get it when we started dating. And and you don't, you've never acted like it was your, our dogs. No, I mean, it's, it's our dog, but it's her dog. Yeah. She said, huh. she's, we were in, we were living together and she said, um, I, I want you to know, I put a deposit on a chocolate lab puppy. So if we're going to keep going with this thing, we need to move into a pet friendly apartment. And you, you know, do you want to go looking for apartments with me or not? And so she made that decision on her own, and he's Meaning the bad she dog. she was going to move whether you did or not? Yeah. She was like, she was like you want to you wanna keep this thing rolling for another year's lease? We need to go find a pet-friendly apartment. But she, she put a deposit on a puppy and did that all on her own. 
and it's her dog. Yeah. He's seven years old and he's terrible. And then uh, what does he do? Uh, he's just. He's like a. Does he shit on the no. carpet? No, hold it. No, he's. No, hold. Go what? on. It's not his wife's <laughs> dog. It's his ma's dog. <laughs> There's a big difference between your dog yeah, and your well, ma's yeah. dog. Go on, Randall. No, he's just. Uh, he's too much. He's just hyper. He's a yeah. He's a hundred pound lab, and Oof. lab people are overwhelmed by him. We actually had someone come uh, over for dinner, and they hadn't seen him in about a year. And they said, oh, wow, you know, you guys are great. Most people I know wouldn't have kept that dog. <laughs> <laughs> no joke. And, and, I mean, we looked at each other like, I don't really know very many people that would get rid of a dog, you yeah. know, just send him on his way. But, yeah, yeah we got that from someone. Oh, you kept that thing around, didn't oh. you? So, hmm. um, but then right before we got married, we got a second dog, and I got to pick that one, and she's perfect. She's an angel. That's your dog. Rosie, yeah. Well, that's my daughter's name. Kind of. It's a good name. You know, the only uh, thing I have to... Com- uh, yeah. oh, okay, sorry. go ahead. Go ahead. The only thing I have to compare that to is when I was younger that when um, we would get... One of my siblings or I would get in trouble, it seemed like uh, the one... Uh, the parent who was pointing that out to the other parent, they would say, your son did this. Yeah. Well, that's because they're seeing th- that behavior, I would guess, being married and having kids. They're seeing that that behavior was reflect- is a result of your influences. <laughs> well, they said it's, it They're about- saying, like, because of you. What they're, what they're saying is, because of you, huh. your son. The parts of our child that, are, that owe to you are responsible for X. Yeah. Can I get it back to this thing? His ma's dog eats it. He then, his mom and dad must be divorced. Huh. So his ma dog eats the turkey. His ma's dog eats the, you, you follow me? Yeah. There's a mom kid. And, mom, mom and, yeah. Okay. And this kid, is still his, the I, 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 a kid I'm is following dad. Well, but other people might. Doug, Doug's probably lost. His, <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was just thinking about there's, there's my a, childhood. No, a, I'll, I'll make a flow diagram. For you, <laughs> a guy, there's a guy, we'll call him the kid. He takes his old man turkey hunt. His old man shoots turkey. The kid then takes the old man's turkey fan. His job is to mount the turkey fan as a gift to the old man. He then takes it to his mom's house to store it. The mom's dog, if they are divorced... It's because the mom's dog is still, right, out for vengeance. Eats the turkey fan. He then goes and gets a different turkey's fan, mounts that, gives it to the old man, and never tells the old man the truth. So the old man, when people come over his house, he's stuck in the awkward position of pointing it to the it on the wall and being like, "See that?" And then telling all about what happened when, in fact, it's a lie. But hold on, but the old man's not stuck in that position because he doesn't know. He doesn't know. The guy is like, am I, is that immoral? What do you guys think? I just think I that's think, keeping I, the peace. I think it's immoral. I think it's keeping the peace. You How's know, it what? keeping the peace? Between the, the parents, the divorced parents. But yeah, I'm reading can... that into it. I don't know. Oh. I'm just guessing. If that's the case, though, I agree with you. If there really is a keeping the peace function if that that was a part of it i feel like he would have said that it was a part of like that his folks were divorced yeah and now the ma and 
who knows? Maybe she. But was I, I read around. the email. I just think he felt bad. Yeah, it's not like he's trying to like preserve some little semblance of, you know, some little semblance of uh, family, you know, dignity that's left after this tumultuous divorce. He is, he's not laying out that level of trouble. It all comes down to whether he can live with his little white lie or not. I think that it's immoral, and I would tell the old man. Really, you it's might pretty, not remember this. Pretty innocuous. <laughs> Do you remember? Lie. Well, uh, let me tell you a lie. Let me tell you something that happened to me, and you'll know all the players. <laughs> it probably has something to do with something. <laughs> no. So when we were little, real little, you know how dad used to take us, like you could go fishing on your birthday? Yeah. It was my, you skip I just lied. Fit. I don't remember that. Oh. <laughs> like you would often get the, you would get to play hooky if you wanted an ice fish on your birthday. Oh. Because I had okay. a February birthday. Yeah. Or whatever, different activities. He took me out. And a guy caught a big northern. Not a, not our party. It was me and dad. And I think alcoholic was with us. And a guy. Do you people know who that is? No. Okay. <laughs> You've introduced him before, but you It's can, a great name. Well, his name is Alcohol. But he, he was a develop, heavy drinker. <laughs> he would develop such a thirst. He would develop such a thirst uh, during his outings that he often couldn't wait to get home. <laughs> Um, another guy catches a, por- a pike and he doesn't want it and dad wants, wants it. So dad takes it and it freezes up like how they do. And my dad says to me, Hey, and throws it to me and I catch it. Ah. And he says, you just caught a pike. And I later told Ron Spring, oh. who was a commercial bait fisherman. Ron Spring made a living catching wigglers and digging worms and catching minnows. I told Ron Spring I caught a 27-inch pike. I don't, I don't know if, I, if it's a good use of our time to do a post-mortem on those two lies, but that one seems, <laughs> that, that one seems far worse. Oh, no. <laughs> it's just I'm putting myself – yeah, that's real bad. But I'm putting myself in the, the role – not of the dad. I'm putting myself in the role of the son where he's living with a lie. Right. But there's the whole bit that the, that the dad actually did get a turkey and it's just. Yeah. You, know, you didn't get shit. No. And then, and then you made. But like I'm not did. putting myself in the role of the dad. I'm putting myself in the role of the son. I, I doubt it would cost him <laughs> anything to come clean and be like, look, here's a deal. This is what I did. This is what happened. Let's go get another turkey next spring. What I would do is just record this and send it to him. <laughs> <laughs> or and let or, him put it together. Or let tell him. Him, or tell him after he gets another turkey. Cause maybe it won't. Yeah, it'd be know. like, you know what, Pops, you'll uh you'll appreciate this. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> on this, let's get on to what we're fixing to talk about. Um oh no, one last thing. Randall Williams is here. Yes. Uh minus his pituitary gland. Yes. How's it feel? Um, Are you as smart as you used to be? No, I'm not. Really? Yeah. Categorically not? Uh, no. Really? Yeah. Tell me more. Um, a lot of issues with memory and um, mm. short-term and long-term memory. Yeah. Oh, I didn't know. I was joking when I said that. <laughs> oh. We can cut this out. <laughs> no. <laughs> so you've been feeling? You've been since, since oh, your yeah, surgery? No, it's been, it's been a pretty... Uh, it's been a pretty rough road, just ups and downs. But yeah, for I mean, I had a lot of symptoms that were pretty similar to like a traumatic brain injury. Really? Yeah. I wasn't aware of that. No. Is it bad that I asked you? No. 
I'm pretty upfront about it all. Are you on hormone replacement? Yeah, I'm on um, I'm on a couple different hormone replacements like testosterone and thyroid hormone, and I take uh, hydrocortisone, which replaces cortisol, um, and then. I've got stimulants, I've got antidepressants, I've got sleeping pills, I've got the whole mix. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. And you got a big I'm bear a, this spring. And, yeah, and, <laughs> and growth hormone. <laughs> so every morning I'm like Barry Bonds. Wow. <laughs> really? Yeah. Yeah, it's the real deal. Oh. I mean, I knew that this was a big deal, but I didn't know that you were really, I didn't know there was that much to it. Yeah. No, it's been a pretty serious, uh, it's been a, been a pretty serious um, struggle, but better than the alternative. I'm all good. Yeah, you're no, on the right side of the grass. I'm, he did get yeah. a big. He did get a big bear. I did. Yeah, I got a big bear. Um, still hunting. Still. Well, you're out. You're tagged on. out now. That's true. Yeah, I just meant in the general sense. Oh, okay, yeah. I have tags for this I was fall. Like, now you are going to get. Now you are going to get in trouble. <laughs> now you are going to get in trouble. No. Um, yeah, it's been pretty crazy. I. I um, Started a new job around that time, and I had to postpone uh, the start of that job for about a month while I went to California and got surgery. And uh, yeah, so it's been a learned a lot about the human body and a lot about myself. And uh, yeah, I didn't mean to make this so serious. No, you didn't. <laughs> but you, I guess what's happened is you being so casual about it was like effective. Yeah, at least in the way you're putting it forth, you were putting it forth to your friends that you seemed casual about it. So yeah. I thought it was more casual than it is. No, I mean I've been. Uh, I mean I, I haven't. I haven't held any secrets, um, but I haven't really broadcast a whole lot of this stuff. I don't put any of that on social media or anything like that. But it's kind of hard to. This is a little bit worse than that. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, yeah. No, I mean it's some of the symptoms like I. I can't hide, you know, like sometimes for a while there, I was like crying all the time mm. and just have very little control over my emotions and all that stuff. So do you um, enjoy movies more now? You know, I've always been a crier at the cinema, mm -hmm. so, uh, that, that hasn't changed much, but yeah. Um, and it's pretty crazy. All these, uh, chemicals and processes in your body and, um, kind of take for granted that it all, works <laughs> yeah but we're figuring it out and uh luckily i've had a lot of help with that so yeah anything else no i'm typing something i, hear, I'm I typing. <laughs> feel like i'm at the doctor's office <laughs> describing my symptoms and you're taking notes um like, no. go on, go on. If, it was, if you were at the doctor's office another dude would come in here a minute and ask you the same set of questions. Oh sure, yeah. And <laughs> then I, I didn't have a copay when You're I like, when like I, I was in. saying, like I was saying to the other person <laughs> that was just in here a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean it's, yeah. It's, I mean, just to sum up, it's been tough, but it's all good. We're figuring it out. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. It's weird. Later, I'll ask you if there's anything else we can do to help. I don't think so. Um. <laughs> Well, back when you had your pituitary gland, you, uh, all the people here. So the reason, what, 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 one of the commonalities. Here's what I'm trying to say. One of the commonalities that binds our friend Randall Williams and 
Doug Dern and my brother Matt Ornelas, they were all uh, participants for good and bad um, in the documentary film that we recently released called Stars in the Sky. And we're going to, we want to talk about this a little bit and kind of do, you know, talk about the, the making of and aftermath of and the themes that we explore in the movie. The movie, if you, uh, if you want to go watch this, and that's what this is really about. I learned that there's a writer, Ian Frazier, and he always says that he's written a lot of books, and he says he likes to very cleanly, um, in the beginning of his books, tell people what a book was about. So he begins a book with the line, this is a book about Indians. <laughs> <laughs> he wants people to know what they're getting into. Um, so yeah, the goal of this here is that you will go watch this movie. Tell them where to watch the movie, honest. You have to go to, do you know? Vimeo. Yeah. You have Stars to go to Vimeo. It's called Stars in the Sky, a hunting story. But what's the website? Stars in the Sky film. And it brings you to Vimeo, and you got to pay some money, but it's like really helpful to us if you do. You got to pay some money, and you can stream it and download it. Super helpful if you do. We started the film, like, it's, it was kind of such, it's such a weird story how it went, because we started the film. Do you even remember? That was how I met Brody, who now works with us. Mm-hmm. When we filmed the first bit of the film was several summers ago. Shifty's in the film, and she's five. Well, how's that help? Well, it was no more than five years ago. Oh, I see. But, but that was not even when we started making it. Oh, Started making it several summers ago. You didn't film me first? No. <laughs> the first thing, like... You were after me. <laughs> you filmed me in 15 or 16. Was it really that long ago? Yeah. My God. It was right it. after we did the first podcast, which was like June of 2015. Yeah. Or, and we had April, already... April of 2015. We had already filmed parts of it then. Because the first... Like, going into it, we knew we were going to do... We kind of knew we were going to do two things. Going into it. It was going to be this exploration of um, sort of the, the, the mindset and conflicts and contradictions and loves and hates and worries and joys of contemporary American hunters. Uh, and I felt that, you know, when we started working on it, we felt that to do this, you needed to kind of show what a hunting trip looked like to, to demonstrate to people what it could be and how it could feel and smell and look. And so the first thing we did in the movie was we just went and recorded. We went and filmed a hunt and we, we filmed a hunt in Alaska for a Sitka black tailed deer. And it was meant to, in some ways, if people watch meat eater, meat eater, the TV show, you, you kind of get, you, you, you can almost kind of imagine what this hunt might be though. It's, it's structured very differently, but just like this kind of like through line. It starts with someone leaving a, leaving a building and striking off into the woods and it ends with someone coming back to a building. Um, and what I, I thought when I, when I mapped out in the movie, like the things I wanted to talk about, the thing, the themes I wanted to explore and ask various hunters from around the country, their impressions of, and, uh, I realized that all of these topics were things that could pretty easily spring off of conversations that one might have or thoughts that one might have or spring off actions and things that could happen on a hunt. So this through line of, of this hunt winds up being 
it winds up presenting these conversation starters. And later, over the wound up being over the years, as we were able to do it, we interviewed a great many people from all around the country and asked them uh, their particular thoughts. And this is kind of where some of the contradictions came into place. Their particular thoughts about these themes and issues that come up and then assemble this thing like a, like a documentary film. And an added voice I wanted to bring in, it's, it's, I'd like to, I actually want to get him on. An added voice that I brought in is a philosopher and an animal rights ethicist named Robert Jones. And he's a steady line as being someone who's not connected to hunting and is actually adversarial to hunting, like opposes hunting outright. And he also speaks about these different themes. What we did is we we wound up interviewing. 20- Can I add that he's definitely a, he's definitely a star of the oh. doc. I think that oh, he's mo- very mo- credible. <clears throat> he really adds a lot. You know, it was a very smart move. I think on your part on directing that. But uh, I mean, just to have both viewpoints. You know, everybody that I talked to is like, I mean, good thing you had him in there. You know. One thing you always get from people is you always get you get people. We encounter this a lot when you like dealing with ideas. People get angry when you give someone a voice. They think that giving someone a voice in media, that giving someone a voice is tacit approval of what that person has to say, or that you by giving someone a voice you endorse what they have to say. And I hear about it a little bit for his inclusion in the movie. Like, why would you give voice to him? And then when we had Rob Bishop on the podcast and, Rob, and like, like we have a pretty consistent uh, pro public lands, like, like, you know, as a company, whatever, we have a pretty consistent pro public lands philosophy. Mm-hmm. And Rob Bishop is, um, I don't want to call him anti public lands at all, but he's, you know, opposes a lot of the things I believe in around public lands management. And people are like, I can't believe you'd give Rob Bishop a voice. I'm like, Rob Bishop is the chairman of the House Natural, was the chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee. I don't know that he's lacking a voice. Like, I wasn't like I went and found someone who had no way to, I mean, the guy could talk to anyone he wants, anytime he wants. Yeah. And this animal rights guy is a professor at a school in California, doesn't lack a voice, but it wound up being one, that was probably one of my favorite interviews that we did for that because it was so, it was really challenging to, to, it was challenging to, like if we were sparring, um, it was challenging, he brought up some really challenging ideas. So if, uh, like Richard Spencer or R. Kelly hunted, would you have them on? Um, it's a good, it's a really good question. Like knowing what we now know about R. Kelly, if we were doing a film, you know why I probably wouldn't, I probably wouldn't because what he's most known for, which is sex abuse of minors in the case of R. Kelly what he's most known for isn't what I would be asking about 
and was so peripheral mm, to right, the conversation right, yeah. that that aspect of their personality or that aspect of their biography dominate. would yeah. be this this like really weighty thing in the room. Yeah. We just sat down and did an interview with we, we did an interview with Bo Jackson about his relationship with hunting. Um and as part of that, you can imagine that we talked a lot about his career as an athlete because it would sort of be this this like weird thing to have not come up. The elephant in the room. Yeah. yeah. And so in that case, I see like that's good devil's advocating, but in that way, yeah. Yeah, yeah I was trying to put you in a spot. I was just no, I was, I I was like legitimately an... I was legitimately curious. So, oh, yeah. yeah. But but no, this dude was fascinating. Um his, like his main thing is that that the main point he tries to get across. And you have to watch because I could, like I kind of cherry rather than like picking moments where he didn't do great. I picked. I felt like I that should say I that we working on it kind of picked his best points. You know, mm-hmm. and and he counter like he has really good counters for things where hunters love to hunters love to talk about it's natural. Right. Oh, man's always hunted. If we didn't hunt, we wouldn't be here today. It's natural. And he brings up, there are a lot of things that are natural. Fratricide, matricide, rape that have always occurred. Mm-hmm. Does that, it's, yeah, I, I, does that mean he, that it's I, good? I like, does, does it, that in and of itself right. an, an endorsement of the activity? Right. That's not, it's not a vindication of hunting that's always been done. I mean, we've always, in, like in the grand, in the, like from a historical historical perspective, we've always not driven cars. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, let me finish my. I want to finish my little preamble here. Then we'll get into a couple other things because Yanni has Yanni has some. Uh, he, he's thought about how to, to how to discuss this, and, and he's got a good idea for it. But the preamble being that I had this idea and it, it felt very cohesive. Um, and then we talk to so many people and then you run into this problem where how long is something? So then you, in the end you have 90 minutes or so, hundred minutes and you go through the very, very painful process of narrowing this down to where you have a hundred plus hours of interviews with people that you need to fit into 100 minutes. And then you wind up with something where someone would watch it and not, this isn't saying something's good or bad. It's just a fact of life. Someone would watch it and never have, and never have any idea what it was, how you framed it in your head. Cause it only makes sense, right? The framing of it only makes sense to someone who, felt that they were seeing like uh, a process that they were trying to put in place. And when it's all done, you can't expect that people would watch and go like, oh, I see what you're doing, you know, because so much falls away. Like when we started this show that you're listening to right now, I had like a, a precise idea of what I was trying to do. No one has ever written and said, you know what? I see what you did there. It's just, it lives in your head only. 
you know. But the 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 guiding through line is just is these these themes. And we're gonna ask you guys a little bit about your feelings about these themes and, and thoughts that you might have had. Um and and you could speak to like kind of like what you meant and what was represented in the movie or if things that you wish you said and hadn't said. And one of the things I want to start with with Matt and, and the, this was like in there almost up to the end. And I don't think it's in there. It's not in there. It was the ending for a long time. For a long time, the ending of the movie, almost the ending of the movie, was you saying, if you woke me up 100 years from now, is that how many years he had said? I can't remember. I think so. If you woke me up 100 years from now and told me there was no hunting, I wouldn't be surprised and I wouldn't care. Mm. I don't remember saying that, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, I I guess I I well the, I, still, saying, like, I still I still I still that still yeah. rings true. You were for saying me. I don't yeah. believe in hunting for hunting's sake. I'm just stuck being this. Yeah, yeah. I don't I don't think that I don't think that hunting makes someone a better person. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want somebody to be a better person, there's better other more constructive uses of their time. It's like, if I was going to advocate for something after that, that's going to carry on after I'm gone, it wouldn't be hunting. I mean, reading books maybe, or volunteering, you know, being a good civil servant is far more important to me than the future of hunting once I'm gone. If I, if I care about hunting at all after I'm gone, it's because, you know, I, I, uh, it's, I guess it'd be, I'd have to be convinced and I partially am that it's, it's good for wildlife conservation. I guess there's part of me that wants to look down from the heavens and see wild animals running around still. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't see hunting as making people better. Get incredible deals on premium cuts from butcher box. Do you like free protein for a whole year? Well, deals this good are hard to come by at the grocery store. I, at home, well, I got two freezers, but you know what I'm saying. I like to have a freezer stocked full of stuff. I like feeling prepared, man. When I come home and it's time to make dinner, I like to go in. I got all my proteins lined up in there. Just makes me feel good about stuff. And with ButcherBox, you'll always be prepared with meat in the freezer. It means fewer trips to the grocery store. Delivered right to your doorstep with free shipping always. You get a variety of high-quality cuts at an amazing value. You'll get exclusive deals as a member, too. Sign up at ButcherBox.com slash eater and get our special deal. ButcherBox is offering our listeners a free-for-a-year offer plus an additional $20 off. Choose salmon, chicken breast, or steak tips free and every order for a year. So every box you get has that in it free for a year. Sign up today at ButcherBox.com slash eater. Make sure you use code MEATEATER to choose your free for a year offer plus $20 off your first order. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. When we were assembling the movie, we took all of the people that we interviewed and asked them about their hopes and fears for the future. Everyone was really, when when talking about like a future, everyone, um, except for two individuals, my two brothers, were the only people out of everyone we talked to who didn't in some way worry about what would be lost. Hmm. And these are two of the people that I know that like it the most. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, I, I, I just watched Dr. Mary for the first time a couple nights ago, and I do remember, like, I'm, I'm proud of the way I described it, that I'm, I'm stuck being a hunter. I, would, I mean, I would just, I'd have an identity crisis that, 48 years of age would be just kind of jarring if all of a sudden I stopped hunting. You know, I don't know what I would do or how I'd relate to what might, what would preoccupy my thoughts, you know? So, um, that's why I, I guess I hunt. My kids recently, I, I brought this up a couple of times, I think, but my kids, recently asking about like why we had to go um i think it was ice fishing on a cold day and like why do we have to go ice fishing it's so cold 
And I tell them, well, you know, I can think of a bunch of reasons, but one would be you'll get to hang out with way cooler people if you learn how to do this. Mm. And so when I think when I think about like if someone says, oh, it's going to be in 50 years, it'll be gone. I wouldn't I wouldn't be able to have a huh. It would like really make me sad. Mm. But a, a lot of it would be nostalgia. Nostalgia for like a ver like the version of it that I experienced and imagine that other people would experience. Yeah. Yeah. There's I mean, so many of my positive memories of. Uh, about hunting are ab about the people I hunt with. I mean, that is, it's the, it's um, d doing these adventurous things with um, people I care about. I don't like, I don't like it as a means for meeting new people very much. Mm -hmm. I just have this small group of people that I hunt with. If I'm going to make friends with somebody, I don't want it to be, like through hunting, probably that's it's not a vehicle for forming friendships for me, really. Although, like a lot of a lot of my closest friends, I've met through hunting, but I don't want it. I don't use it in that way, you know. Like if if you're at a wedding reception, and someone looks across the room and says, "Oh, you know that guy likes to hunt a lot." You don't feel like a gravitational pull. Yeah, to I want to talk to him about it, and then <laughs> yeah, I want to talk to him about it. But if he's if he's <laughs> I mean, there's just so yeah, many the guys first, that you're, you're, the first get the thing out of their mouth. out and show me all the big shit I, they got, and then I'm gonna be jealous, and then I'm gonna wish that you would go, they'd go away. You know, you can but always then, tell. Like, no, you know, you can always like, tell. One of I the... met Doug, I, 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 and Giannis through hunting, and I consider very good friends of mine. So I, I don't know. I, I should really think this out better before. <laughs> well, you know what? I, you can always tell when a conversation is gonna go wrong when you at like when you at a wedding reception and you go and talk to the guy that someone says likes to hunt. You'd be like, oh yeah, what you, you guys been? What have you been hunting? And you're like, oh yeah, we've been getting a lot of turkeys. Use a 12 gauge. Uh huh. You right. always know. Right. You always right. know. Right. That should be the 20th thing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had a guy. If it's not like, oh yeah, where do you guys go? I had a guy on the the ranch where my the my wife co-owns and works the dude ranch. Another co-owner. He likes to careful talk, now. He likes to talk hunting once in a while. Careful. Okay. <laughs> you should have set it up different yeah <laughs> yo thank you thank you man i would not i wasn't even thinking about that i, <laughs> I guess i've grown comfortable with this podcasting thing i just think is it too late conversation <laughs> yeah yo no you're right you're absolutely right it would it could be devastating i don't know we'll cut we'll cut it out i don't know if she listens to this or not oh we'll cut it out um no, 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 you don't need to cut it out. I, I, we can keep this part in. Yeah. Really? Yeah, I'm willing. I mean, we didn't, I didn't even say where I was really going yeah. with it yet. There's another thing you say in the movie, and you do say this in the movie, and I, I, I love the line. What? I just, I was, I'm, now I want to know. Oh, you can ask him later. Yeah, well. There was, a, another, there was another person. Okay, a different in a different locale, <laughs> <laughs> and they they said they said to me exactly you say when when the firearm or the the weapon is the first thing that comes up, it's just a bad sign of how it's the conversation's flag. gonna go, and uh, 
Because I just think of weapons as something that you use to slow down animals so that you can cook and eat them. I don't give a <laughs> fuck about that shit, you know. Half the time I can't even remember what caliber my goddamn rifle is. Um, so uh, he, he says, so what do you use to kill them? And he wanted me to go over eight fifty five, you know, and I yeah, just, said, and I just said a shotgun. <laughs> <laughs> Your shit's a shotgun with uh, <laughs> bullets in it. <laughs> um, there's a thing you say in the movie, and I and I love it. And people, it's like the one line that people bring up that people like the most in the movie. And I don't even know what you really mean by. It. I mean, I know what you mean by it, but you're saying, uh, you said if if you say if cabbages had legs, I'd hunt them too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that... So is it that you like to hunt things that have legs? <laughs> well, I like to hunt things that are motile. I mean, I also... <laughs> I'll also... What does that word mean? That they move. Yeah. Not mobile. Motile. Mo well, yeah, I think it's just another way of saying the same thing. I'm checking. That, there's also... Well, you know what a, one, an animal that doesn't move is, or an organism that doesn't move is? Cecil. It's a Cecil organism. No, oh, yeah, you're right. Capable of motion. Yeah, and uh, I like I like to gather Cecil organisms. I just gathered some horse mushrooms the other day. But how you been doing on wild asparagus? Kicking ass. It was it's been really really good. My pee's been stinking every day. That's good. Can you tell people a hot tip on finding wild asparagus? You taught me. Oh, uh, you can yeah. spot it driving down the, the river in your boat yeah. at full tilt. You gotta look for last year's stems. Right. Do you have it in Wisconsin? Yeah, we have ditch asparagus. Oh, oh yeah. ditch we? <laughs> <laughs> we have that too. But uh, no, the, yeah, ditch asparagus. Is it pretty pretty abundant there? Um, if you know where to go, yeah. Oh. Yeah, your riverboat isn't fast, but you've I've seen you spot it at full tilt. Oh yeah, and and, and you know, I I can also spot green new stems at full tilt. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you just kind of get a search image in your brain. After tell them a while. about the tell them about last year's growth because this is a hot tip. Yeah, so you look for last year's stalks, as you know, and it puts uh, off a branch at a perfect, perfect yeah, a perp perfect ninety, perfect perpendicular, yeah, to where the branch with the stem creates two perfect forty-five degree angles, and that's key because there's a lot of other plants that superficially look like. it. You know, the dead stems look superficially like. But the way that branch comes off that stem, like you could square a house with that some bitch. Man, I've been finding some like, I don't know why, but it seems like at the tail end of the season, they get fatter. And I've been finding some freaking quarter pounders lately. Like, <laughs> big around is a silver dollar. It's like you really? need a steak knife. Yeah. And it's just well, as good. Right. And that's interesting. And I realized that because I got some that was grown in a garden from Doug's wife. That's the easiest way to find it is, yeah. is to actually propagate it. But. And when she first <laughs> bought it out. It's yeah. over at, in, in that part of my garden. <laughs> <laughs> when oh, she, I just look on I'll over there. Finish, I, yeah. When she first busted them out, I'm kind of like, oh, those big old things? Because when you, like, I never buy asparagus that looks like that in the store because it's gross. 
Oh, but out of the ground, man. You can oh, eat like a carrot stick. Yeah. I mean, just unbelievable the difference. Like you said, just as tender and as tasty as the, the little guys. Yeah. So it's all non-native, right? Yeah. Yep. It's all like, fer- it's like feral. feral house cats, but feral asparagus. Yeah. So uh, if cabbages had legs, I'd hunt them too. Well, I think that Dan Doty was there that day, and he asked me, what is it about meat? Oh, and that's what yeah, precipitated yeah. that. I, so I guess the, I, I don't want to, it just seems to be like it's all about me. It's like, I love to eat all kinds of food. I love, I, I see love what you're saying. vegetables. I love, um, it's just that to, to procure meat, you got to hunt it. So yeah, that's that the product of hunting, the food product of hunting just so happens to be meat. But if, if cabbages ran around in the woods, I would freaking love to go hunt me a cabbage. You don't like, not that you won't do it, like you'll eat in restaurants like the rest of us. You don't relish buying meat. Well, with one exception. my It just so happens that my three favorite foods are um, conventionally raised meat products. Tell me more. Hot dogs? Um, Bologna? No. Chicken wings with ranch, chicken wings with blue cheese, and chicken wings are my three favorite foods. Well, that changed because <laughs> his old, <laughs> a close your fourth. old favorite food was pizza. Yep. And your second, no, your favorite food was hot wings. Your second favorite food was pizza. Yeah. And I, then one day, this is a big deal. This is a big moment. I like this story. One day you go into a restaurant and they had hot wing pizza, pizza, which was not good. And you ordered it and were surprised that it wasn't good. <laughs> yeah, and it really like shook yeah. you up. No, you're right. It's like too much of a good thing. Yeah. yeah. No, I remember how delighted you were. It was like the first hunt we might have done. I think Juanita was there, and we were in Ennis maybe, and we we went to some random you know restaurant that was the first year it was open, probably the last year it was open. And you looked at the menu and you're like, "This is my kind of place." And all it was was like. Pizza, hot dogs, wings, and like, and you ordered yeah. one of everything and ate one of everything and just happy as can be. Yeah, I do like I do like the bar food. Um, <laughs> we in the oh another thing I really like and I I just gotta say this and I'll stop talking so much but is I really like. Well, I'm asking you questions right now. Okay. Yeah. I really like. I'm working around the the way you don't deal poker. Um, so I'm going to. Okay. Yeah. I like um uh a. Th- some thin sliced turkey on Wonder Bread with a bunch of mayo and cranberry sauce. Hmm. Like Thanksgiving leftovers. Uh huh. That's a favorite food. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So <laughs> you've expressed like you don't relish buying meat. I don't buy. I don't buy meat. Yeah. You I like because there's a fruit. The chicken a wing thing is like a bar food. It's it's a it's a major treat, and my wife. But you know, do you go? My buy? wife weighs probably a hundred and what do you think, fifteen, thirty pounds? Yeah, she's one thirty. Very similar to my she wife. She eats as much food or more food than I I do, and I'm not exaggerating. And that woman can freaking monster truck some chicken wings, man. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's kind of like something we do together. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> so. Uh, what I'm getting at here, let me tell you where I'm going with this. You don't relish buying meat. No. 
I and don't. Lot, I don't buy meat except when I go to a restaurant. Yeah, and a lot of that, like, it comes from a couple places, I think. And you, you've expressed this, and, and I'm sure you're like, I'm sure your feelings about it have evolved and changed over the years because all of our feelings evolve and change over the years. But I think that you are a naturally very frugal person, um, and you would never be like, well, why would I buy something when I have like an approximation of it? in my freezer mm-hmm. and you're not and you're like sure it's more convenient that it's all like ready to roll and thawed out but you'll go home and thaw elk meat out in your eat, microwave right and eat it yep because you're frugal but there's also a little bit of ethics mixed in there there's some ethics and there's also another dimension that i tried to explain um when i was interviewed for the documentary it didn't make the cut and i can see why because i wasn't very clear and i probably won't be now either but there's this childlike it's from childhood this is where this feeling emerged was in childhood for me this giddy sense of getting something from free to eat from nature Mm -hmm. and that is an abiding component of what drives me to hunt and gather is in fish is that what that giddy feeling of like you doing it yourself and getting uh your food from nature for free like yeah it's like it's like a thing that i've been thinking about because we've been eating a lot of morels from doug's farm that he picked morels are good right they're good yeah but they're not that good they're not that good i mean they're great but people's enthusiasm for listen listen they ain't chicken wings no. <laughs> well, I know are, who's not getting no, any more morels. Hear me out. No, hear me out. Hear me no, out. I lo- hear me oh, out. Man. I like okay. I like morels. Love morels. But people's and people who look for and find morels have an enthusiasm that exceeds the flavor of the morel. Yeah. Yeah. It's it it's like it's not like they're like, dude. Come May, I'm eating a shitload of morels, whether I got to buy them or not. That's not true. People that hunt morels, if all of a sudden there was a drought and no morels came up, it's not like they're going to be driving around calling to stores to find morels because they have to have morels. They, morels are great because you find the sun's bitches growing out of the dirt. Yeah. Yeah. I and remember, they're great. And they're great. And they're great. I remember what I'm when, saying. Uh, it's like you can't, unta- you can't untang, like you can't disconnect the two. Yeah. I remember when I did I did a deep dive on mushrooms for a number of years, three, four years. Meanwhile, right? you were like really infatuated really by mushrooms. Learning a lot of different species. Yeah, you got and, to where you knew more about mushrooms than anyone I knew. And I remember learning that they have no calories. And that was very disappointing to me. Because I'm like, yeah, dang it. Really? So this isn't <laughs> like getting a food item anymore. <laughs> Although they have minerals. Morels we read um have protein in them. Oh. Do they really? Mm-hmm. It's interesting. They sure taste like they would. They taste like freaking meat, man, when you put a little Oh, they're good, yeah. Flour on them and brown them in a bunch of butter. Oh my god. Do you guys see what I'm saying? Doug, I'm yeah, not dissing it. your morels, man. Okay, well let me ask you this, Doug. When was the last time you bought a morel? I have never bought a morel, okay. and I've never <laughs> sold a morel either. I've given a lot of them away, and I agree completely what, with what you're saying about the the fascination with going out there 
And I mean, I was so frustrated this spring because I'm looking and I'm looking and, you know, I'm going out almost daily because the conditions are right and I've got great spots. And my wife and I were out looking for them and, and uh, we, we came around and we had taken a pretty good hike and, and <laughs> ironically found this big batch that, that you saw and then you got some of right behind the barn. I mean, you know, 150 yards from the house. And uh, I had left that tree alone, but we came around there and it's just this fascinating sort of magical thing to come there and see this little village of of these little <laughs> <laughs> little village oh, little oh, roly poly yeah. houses of little, yeah. you know little fairies and and, and, and you you see village. them and then you look away for a second and you look back and it, okay there, i know there was one there where did it go and we we spent trish and i spent an hour and a half there picking morels and just keep looking and you know and and Trish said, we picked 125 or 175 morels there. And she said, thank you for everyone that she got. Oh, and she thanked t- the earth. T- yeah. t- well, and the, 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 I mean, there's, it's, it's the magic of it. It's, it is magic. Yeah, you can take so somebody that is- that's never seen a morel, never eaten a morel, out morel hunting, and they'll get that, yeah. like that about it. And uh, with those well, things, too, like that, that makes them extra special is that you can't farm them, mm-hmm, right? Right. There's, there's something wild about them. Yeah, they're wild. It's like people get excited about the asparagus, but you can go to the store and buy them. But it's still a thousand times cooler to find it. They com- or you can grow them. They no, completely I- defy cultivation. I think that I think that when you see a morel, it's wild grown. I don't mm-hmm. think you can. I don't think you. Can, yeah, I don't think you can cost effectively. Yeah, but I think I I I know that you can buy these little pots where you water them, and if you do, that's my understanding. Is no one's up. figured out a way to like make money cultivating right, right, morels. Right. Talking about your just your relationship with just like the meat, right? And you talk about like hunting isn't like the meat because I'd hunt cabbages, right? Um, but then you you have some pasture land at your house, mm-hmm. and you guys raise up you and your buddies raise up some lambs. We did for a while, yeah. And then you know you'd go out and have to dispatch, say, mm-hmm. the lamb, and you didn't like that. Mm-mm. Hated it. No, I. No, I did not relish that. There was like, and then I was doing. Let, 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 let me uh, okay. do. Let me lay one more part on. Then you okay. can talk about the whole experience because you don't like that. No, you kind of dread it. And then, but then you really enjoy the lamb meat. Mm-hmm. So, is that connected to hunting, or is that as different from hunting as picking asparagus? You know what I mean? Like, like what is that? Because in the movie, we see your place and your kind of little livestock area there. Yeah. Um, so the the raising the sheep, I was doing that with some friends that they hunt a little bit, but not a lot. And they got young families and they were using the meat. And I would take a little bit of it, but it was more to encourage them to spend time at my house. And just like something to do with my community of people, you know, my friends. Um, I think that when... I kill an animal hunting. It's like, it's, it's, it's usually after a tremendous amount of work. So the feeling of accomplishment kind of, kind of offsets the sadness a little bit, you know, kind of overrides it a little bit because there's so much work involved in finally getting something. But when you kill a domestic animal, it's just the sadness without that other component to it. Does that make any sense? Yeah. I I puzzle over it with the because people are like oh you just like to kill, but then 
when you go out to like, and maybe some people don't, but anyone that I have that works in livestock that I know, they might really love to hunt, but I never meet anyone who's real excited to go out and shoot the pig. Right. Right. Yeah. I like hunting right up to the point where I pull the trigger and then I stop liking it to the point where the animal is starting to become meat. Oh, really? Yeah. Huh. The other, that, that inner, if you're tracking something or have to finish something off, that is too nerve wracking and, and sad. You're watching the life go out of something. I know the sadness is real because I've seen so many people cry, but then be really glad that they did it. But I don't, I don't, and I know people talk about it, and I feel like I've even paid some lip service to it. But when I really think about it, I'm really honest about it. There's not, the sadness is only when it goes bad. Oh, yeah. When you make a mistake, yeah. then it's awful. But no, to see something go bam down on the ground, never sadness. Never. It's only when it's ugly. Mm hmm. Um, Doug, one of the themes, Matt was themeless. Matt's conversation was themeless. <laughs> Meaning, I asked you about all the themes, but your perspectives are just interesting perspectives. But Doug is like part, like Doug's role in the film is part of a theme. Okay. Um, did you feel manipulated by the movie? Not at all. You didn't feel manipulated? No, I felt like... Uh, I hope you weren't because I was ho I was kind of hoping that that's who you were. I mean, you look... You were... Well, no, let me tell you way, the way in which... <laughs> let me tell you the way in which Doug it was... It seemed me. like Doug to me. No, it's Doug. It's Doug. It's Doug. Absolutely. But if you were manipulated, the manipulation occurred with what's said before your segment, what's said before your profile piece. And oh, about and, trophy hunting. The, and the, yeah. the first sentence that comes out of your mouth in the movie. Right. Which was not the first sentence that came out of your mouth when we sat down to interview you. So there was a manipulation of what you said. And, and there was a manipulation of when you said it, the amount of emphasis you might put on it. And then to have it be the first thing out of your mouth really sets that tees up a point. And it starts out with the animal ethicist. Doug's segment is kicked off by the, the animal ethicist and animal rights activist who says the most egregious form of hunting mm, I know where you, yeah. is so trophy hunting. hunting. Uh, yep. And then the next sentence you hear is Doug saying, yeah, I think you say, yeah, I guess I'm a trophy hunter or yeah, I do some trophy hunting. It was interesting. Which, oh, oh, no, go ahead. I'm gonna let you go. I just want, I just want to, make, I just want to set the scene a little bit. Yep. And then the movie tells the story of a particular deer, right. and the way it would, the way I feel that it might have been taken by you to be slightly manipulative is it takes your life story and family story, and the death of your brother, um, to sort of serve this thing of uh, to sort of make this point that when you go into a person's house and you see a dead deer hanging on their wall mm -hmm. without asking them you will never know you might have assumptions about what that thing represents and assumptions about what it stands for and what it's supposed to mean and what it's supposed to make you as the looker feel but you will never really know 
when you look at something dead hanging on someone's wall is kind of what even like your story is so beautiful as a freestanding thing, but it's kind of like it, it's, it's taken to service that point. Like, Hey, let's, yeah, let's talk about a dead deer on a wall. I know just the fucking deer. It's that dog's house. <laughs> 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 yeah. Um, no, I, I didn't feel uh, manipulated by, uh, by it at, at all. And in fact, I think before we even started to roll camera, you said that you had, had been speaking with uh, uh, this fellow, Robert Jones, is that his name? And uh, who I was my favorite, he was my favorite person in the in the film. I mean, other than everybody in this room. But um, That was a good save, Doug. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, because I, 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 I liked the way he asked the questions or made the points and I couldn't disagree with his ideas. Um, it was more the exploring of them that I was more interested in. Mm -hmm. Um, and in the case of the, of, of that deer, you had, you, before the cameras rolled, you said, uh, so we were just talking to this animal ethicist and and, I told you this. Yeah. Okay. And, uh, and you said, uh, so he said the most egregious thing is, trophy hunting and i and and you said well i told you that yeah before the cameras rolled sitting in that bar sitting in the bar yeah and and you remember the deer hanging on the wall full of deer (laughs) and uh i said well there's a bunch of trophies right there like you know what's the um and we didn't talk about those deer at all we talked about a particular deer in the story behind it and uh my it's interesting because one of the things my wife said about about the movie is that you were a younger man when this was made <laughs> because of the time had passed. And, and not only was I a younger man, I was, you know, my, my thinking. She was saying you were a younger man. Yeah. Your wife said to you, you were a younger yeah, man. Yeah. She yeah. noticed that I wasn't as great. Was she something. feeling frisky after watching it? <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, <laughs> I don't remember exactly. Um, I watched it the second time. The other She's night. like, I don't remember you looking like that. <laughs> I watched it the second time the other night with my daughter in Chicago, and um, that was a real interesting thing, too. So how things have evolved for me since, um, as we tell, as, as, the, as you tell in the, in the movie, um, my brother, my younger, my late brother, Matthew, um, and I had talked about deer management, and um, it was conservation-based deer management, but really a part of it was, you know, we were sort of Oh, we've been killing with these little forkies, you know, the thing that we get a basket full of. And um, uh, and uh, we had started talking about deer management, things that we could do better and, you know, habitat work and all that sort of thing. And then and then he died tragically. And um, I kept that that idea alive. And uh, we I think we did a good job of 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 conservation, you know, deer management. And uh, it sort of culminated in the fact that I, I got to kill that deer. And uh, it was, uh, you know, as I said in the movie, it was sort of a remembrance of that, of that whole process. It wasn't like, oh, yeah, we manipulated our landscape and we let all these bucks go and then all these things happen. And, then, and, and, and it wasn't that. It was much more, I mean, the first thing I thought about when I killed that deer was him. And... Uh, and, and what we had done and, and how close it was to where, where that had all happened. And, uh, and so it was really the, the remembrance of a whole, a whole um, 
group of things that happened in, in over a period of time. And, uh, and then it wasn't that important. I, I mean, I've, that, that deer is, is real important symbolically, but what I've learned since is that, uh, or acted on since is that the conservation is, was way more important. Um, any of those restrictions or attitudes that we had about not, you know, shooting younger deer, that's all gone now. Yeah. Because the thing that's more important now is conserving, to me, conserving the resource and doing the right thing for the species. And um, far down that road we want to go, but because of where our farm is located, that's, you know, it's a part of it. And so, to me, it was just sort well, of... Well, you tell me what you're talking about, because they're going to be confused if not. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, uh, but but it, brings up a, it brings up an interesting point where you, and, and I find this all the time, like, you know, you're always leaving these these sort of time stamps by things you say, but then earlier I mentioned to Matt how people evolve over time, and, and your understanding of yourself and understanding of things around you change, and, and you try to, um, you know, I have these certain, like, things I feel consistently throughout life, and I explain them in a way and then i start to realize that that i know that the thing is there like let's say there's some like undeniable there's some undeniable truth okay that, that, that can't be debated that it's there like there's an objective reality that's there and and i feel that, that that objective reality stays constant through life and i'll look at that objective reality and i'll say to people um you know why that's that way Right, it's that way because, and I'll explain why it's that way. And then ten years ago, by the objective reality is still there. And I'll say, you know why I think it's that way, and it'll be different. And some people will be like, "Well, you used to think," and I'm just like, "Yeah." And I came up with a thing a long time ago. I'm like, "I used to shit my diapers." <laughs> I used to shit my diaper. You usually say it like this. I used to shoot, shit my di diapers, but things change. <laughs> it became uncomfortable. No, no, that's not it. That's not it. it, it the devil's in the details with this. It's, yeah, I used to shoot, shit my diapers too, but things change. That's how you say and, it. And you may well still again. <laughs> yeah. It's the arc of a lifetime. It's right? the exactly. sad reality. So, point being... Point, well, there's a saying, uh, what's that saying? It's uh, once a man, twice a boy. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. Or what walks on um, four legs in the morning, two legs in the afternoon, and three legs in the evening. That's what you had to say. That's what, uh, was it Oedipus? I think you're right. When he, like, Oedipus, his deal was, we talked about Oedipus before, Oedipus, didn't we? Oedipus' deal was he was raised not by his actual parents, but he didn't know that they weren't his parents. And he goes to a soothsayer. The soothsayer says to Oedipus, oh, you know what's going to happen to you? You'll kill your dad and marry your ma. Mm. But he doesn't know that his, he thinks he lives with his parents. Uh -huh, so he splits. Right, right. He splits right. To, 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 to get away from his thing and then winds up in some crazy town. And to get into the town, you got to answer a riddle. And he answers that riddle and the guy that gave him the riddle dies or he kills him. And he goes into town, gets in a fight with a guy, kills him, marries the gal, his dad and ma. Mm. Um, That's where the riddle came from. Well, but th what I was trying to get at was this. 
That was the riddle that he had to solve. Now, what I'm trying to get is this. What your kids asked me last when night. When I caught you, your time stamp. Yes. In, in this movie, movies in, no, in the digital age, they'll live forever in some form or another. Um, your time stamp is a guy that's like interested in growing big, huge, giant bucks because in your mind, like big, huge, giant bucks are emblematic of like a healthy deer population. And then chronic wasting. And then the movie ends and you get really concerned about chronic wasting disease and it emerges that, that like a, a leading theory on the spread of chronic wasting disease is the deer most likely to go all over the damn place. Um, and that's young bucks. And then you start, uh, you kind of have an attitude of just trying to lower deer numbers in your area because that's the game agency objective too, is just to, to drive deer numbers down, down, down to slow the spread of chronic wasting disease. So had we made a movie about you uh, five years, two years after we did, right? It'd Things be a completely different story. Except the thing that... So there you are saying stuff that you don't even believe anymore. Not true. He'd that, believe those things if the circumstances were still the same. Yeah. But the, 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 the uh, what was the... Uh, Oedipus? No. no, no the, Sleep the, with your mom? The, 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 <laughs> <laughs> You'll appreciate this. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, 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 the thing that's consistent throughout it, and, and you and I have had this conversation before, and we've talked about it on the show, and we've talked about it on, on podcasts, and we've hit, you know, is that it's a part it's a the conservation of of the area and a part of what we were doing in uh growing you know bigger and older bucks is that we were knocking the population you down. go ahead and call them big huge giant bucks doug uh i really don't like that expression <laughs> um, but um so you know more mature whatever we it, it was a part of oh we've got a population problem and that was expressing itself in our in our woods um and and, and you know our, we were uh, there was over browse and we were trying to regenerate oaks and so um and we're killing a bunch of deer but we happen to be targeting uh does more and then i'm learning well you can't really stockpile bucks it's not like you can just turn the whole farm into a whole bunch of bucks and because and, you know this used um, to be all does now it's all big bucks <laughs> and then it's you know and then the other thing that's interesting about big giant bucks is once there starts to be a lot of them around it's not that unusual it's not that special anymore deer are special to me um and the fascination of seeing them in the woods but anyway so it was conservation based and that has been the overriding theme through through my lifetime. That's what I meant by the objective reality. That's what the phrase that I was looking for um, that I couldn't remember. Um, the objective reality the is... Fixed, the, the fixed thing. The fixed thing is conservation. And so I, I don't think that... The, uh, I've been accused, um, you know, not, well, I guess in some ways negatively about, yeah, well, you used to be the guy who was all about... Ra I didn't think you killed, you know, yeah. those. I thought you were a big buck hunter. And you know, I've been accused that in, of that in in, in uh, bars and things like that. And um, my response is, well, no, it's just always been the same idea: is that we're trying to do what's best. Um, and one of the byproducts of that was bigger bucks and older bucks. And um, uh, and so that was one of the things that happened of it. And I I felt like not only was the was the the, the standard as we. Came to, we never named uh, you know, how whitetail guys name deer when they see them on the camera and stuff. We, you don't we, name them until they're dead. We don't. 
<laughs> I like that a lot better. <laughs> well, and, and, a, and a friend of ours uh, had said uh, when he saw it, he goes, well, that is the standard by which all deer in the future will be judged. Right. And so, you know, that was how that happened. And, um, and, and so that, that's the part that made sense to me. And, and now that um, the resource, because of chronic wasting disease, has been uh, is threatened. I mean, we have high prevalence in our area. Um, I can't. I, I have trouble with with the visualization now of seeing a hundred deer in a field and and uh, you know realizing that up to thirty five to forty of a hundred of that hundred deer are carrying a a, a, a fatal disease that they're they're also spreading yeah. around. Um, not in our area yet, but south of us. So I'm trying to do what I can for it. So. The conservation ethic of it is is that um, overriding theme, or that that continuum of it, and and the the, the fascination of of uh, deer in the woods and the time in the woods is also the the part of it that's been real consistent for me. But um, Jones brought up a lot of the questions that, um, and I never was offended by anything that the guy said. Um, or and I and I thought he was a fascinating uh, guy because he talked about moral responsibility, and uh, and I and I feel that responsibility, um, and I think that um, all the folks that I like to hang out with anyway and, and hunt with and stuff that they feel that responsibility for it too, um, just like I feel a responsibility. You know, you're talking about um, the livestock that you raise, and you know, as you know, I raise cattle and. Um, there's, I have a, I have mixed feelings about that, but at the end of the day, um, there's a, I feel a responsibility. I would never grow cattle in a way that, uh, you know, that they are done on a large scale. I just, it's just not something that I would do. And I'm in a position where I don't have to. Because you dislike large scale because it's large scale. You dislike what you assume comes with large scale or what you know to, what you know to come with large scale. What I know to to come. If you had, if you have an experience, if you create an experience, that's the right word. You create a reality or an experience for your cows. If you can, what's the difference if you're doing it for that experience for 20 or that experience for a thousand? If, it's how they're raised. You know, one of the things that you brought up was the, the like the, the desire of people now to know that their meat is humanely raised, that their animals are humanely but I mean, raised. Like, you see what I'm saying, right? It's not that it's large. It's not that the fact that it's large scale. It's like what efficiencies no. come with large scale that you don't like. Uh, or, yeah. or there's a, I'm, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but there's probably an environmental component too. Exactly, like, that's exactly right. Like if you have a lot, if you're doing a thousand, then you got a lot of manure you're dealing with, and for a finite, I mean, for, these for confined a feeding, yeah. confined feeding operations are environmentally problematic to say the least. <clears throat> and when I was a kid, when you drive around our area, it was, and you guys have been there, farm here, farm there, farm there, and and, and sort of everything that was happening looks like a milk jug, man. Yeah, green and, hills, red barns, silos, yep. black and white cows, and uh, you know the the manure that was being uh, produced on that farm or those cattle was pretty much going back right in the, the field, and there were yeah. times that you you know you kind of wish you had more because right. it was you know it was, it was it was it was a it wasn't a byproduct or a waste product that you're getting rid of. Yeah. Um. So there's that. Uh, there's the living on concrete. You know a. a, a a cow, a steer, whatever, living its life out in, a, in, a, in an environment like that, I, I, 
for me, I, I mean, I, I'm not going to judge other people that are doing it, but for me, I don't think that's um, morally responsible. I raise grass-fed beef. I'm able to do it in a way that uh, um, I think about all the time, like, am I doing this right? Am I treating them well? Is it, uh, um, uh, is this, you know, environmentally sensitive? Um, and then Robert Jones would say, yeah, well, that's all great. But in the end, you kill it. Yeah. He'd say, well, let's take it one step further and not do it at all. Let's finish. Let's finish it up. <laughs> well, um, but you're sort of saying like, no, you're sort of saying I have to do it. This is the best I can do. He would challenge the idea that you have to do it. Um, yes. Yes, he sure would. Um, but I think that that idea when he talked about instinct, for instance, well, you know, we don't act on all of our instincts, but we can act on our instincts in a, in a moral, morally responsible way. It was an interesting way. point. He said, when I smell bacon, I think, man, that bacon smells <laughs> <Yeah>. good. <laughs> it was really interesting to hear him say that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, I don't take any of it lightly. Uh, you, you know, you were asking me about this last night or the day before or something, and, and um, it gets harder for me. Uh, you know, I loaded up a bunch of uh, six-month-old calves, uh, six-month-old um, steers and heifers last year and sent them down the road and listened to their mother's beller. And they, you know, I mean, it was a it was a decision that I had to make because of the, the cattle and all of that. Um, and it was, it, I'm literally changing how I'm raising cattle because I don't want to do that again. Hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to raise them differently. Um, and not have big groups of cattle like that. I'm going to take them through their lives so that in when they do um, go to slaughter, and I really want to move towards um, being able to be a USD and have a USD inspected mobile butcher come to my, back into the barn, walk them on there, and, and they, they do all the work right there um, because the inspection is important to me because I sell the, 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 the beef. But rather than even putting them on that truck, to go to the locker where they then settle down, spend the night, and the next morning they die. That's how we do it now. Um, but I can tell you this, they have a great life up to that point, just like the deer on our farm do. Um, and, I, and, I, and I try to balance that with, you know, with that, that's that responsibility that I feel. And I think that, um, that as you said, I think that's the best I can do. Uh, quick story for you. A little digression. I was at my friend Anna's house one time. Her dad was a vet, but also a rancher. And she had a bunch of friends over, including some vegetarians are over. And they get there and they got this little, they got this little corral right off their house. And it's all the lambs are in the corral. And I said, what's going on with the lambs, you know? And she makes like a throat cutting gesture to me mm -hmm. like this is a sensitive subject considering the people she has over and while we're there hanging out in her living room a truck backs in and the guy's custom plate is one shot jj <laughs> 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 she looks out the window she's like uh-oh <laughs> and jj got out his 22 and set to work Really? Oh, wow. Yep. Set what, to work. what did they think of that? No one really liked it. But they. He set to work right then and there. 
Well, I've been I mean, with- no one went out to view, but it was just like, you know. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh, a guy, uh, one shot JJ's here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I wonder what he's for. And he had the whole, he had his truck, but then he also had his whole mobile. Anyhow. Yeah, I've been real matter of fact about it in the past because I grew up with it, you know, with the, the slaughtering of animals and, and, and hunting and all of that. I think that's key. And I think that, that that's like what makes you realize that it's just, uh, it's kind of like, there's a lot of things, a lot of sense, a lot of a lot of tough issues that if you were raised in a, in a, a, a range of environments, you'd come out thinking the same thing. Like we'd all agree that no matter what kind of household we were raised in, that violent crime is bad. That you know, beating somebody up is bad. Well, there are people who well, question what, that. Well, yeah, but I mean, depending on how they're raised, often or their level of sociopath, right. sociopathy. Right, but. <laughs> Go on. 99% sure, yeah. of people would agree that perpetrating violence against somebody is wrong. But with hunting um, or killing animals, whether you were great raised in like a vegetarian household or a hunting, house, farming household has a huge bearing yeah. on what you end up thinking as an adult. Uh, yeah. I know that because I've had... S- I, I continue to have so much exposure to people who had such a very different upbringing and, and, and the things that I think of as just very matter of fact are sometimes shocking to people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like look at, uh, look at even people that have been exposed a lot to hunting and fishing. Like, like my, my wife, you know, she, she's been exposed to hunting and fishing on and off her whole life. She and ranching and ranching. She doesn't hunt and fish, but she's been exposed to it. She thinks it's deplorable that we don't kill panfish. I've talked about this on this here program a uh, lot. Yeah. And uh, to me, that is just, I was told when I was a little kid that they don't feel stuff. Hold on. Expand on that because it's not just that we don't kill panfish. Okay, so we catch the fish and we don't dispatch when you catch them. A cat, if you catch a catfish the- and throw it in the bottom of the boat, she acts like you're driving around with a deer flopping around in the back of your truck. Yeah. Or you'd have a rabbit in your game pouch. Kicking around back there, and and when that's I, exactly how she views yeah, it. Yeah, and when I try to counter her, my arguments are extremely thin. Like, I don't know what that thing is feeling. You know? Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want. Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. 
I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. That narrative, which I love, it's like this sort of thing, and, and I'm not for Pat Durkin's explored that narrative of of your family farm and this like NBNY that, that we get into in the movie, Nice Buck Next Year, this sort of ethos or this conservation ethic that perhaps is elastic in some way, uh, that it's like a really um, it's this really like compelling, beautiful, and very tidy story. It's like this nice tidy package when you want to pluck it out. And so, and to have it be in a movie that you like pluck this little package out and bookend it with other people's sentiments, it has, it winds up feeling like conclusive, you know? But then it ends and shit goes on. Yeah. Well, right? it, it, and li- right, the story continues, just yeah. like the story has continued to that farm for 115 years. And one of the interesting things to me is how, in the arc of my lifetime, we went from few deer to 
more deer to now to too many deer and disease. And at the same time, that's ha- I mean, if you're just isolating the deer, and at the same time, we have this, these other conservation issues on our on our uh, property and in, in our in the whole driftless area um, that are all sort of interwined together. And so I see them as as a group of of issues that are interwined together, as opposed to you know people who are most interested in or in some cases solely interested in deer and deer only um and i don't i don't know exactly how to um wrap that all up real uh tidy but i i think that with the kinds of themes that we're talking about the 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 bigger ball of all of these things together is is you know where i rest my rest my case in all of this that i'm not just caring for one thing or trying to do one thing I'm trying to do, and a lot of folks that I know um, doing that, and, and really the people that I, I personally respect the most are trying to do a, uh, something that's much more um, a wider conservation-based idea. Yeah. That's, and, that's Leopold, the whole community. Yeah, yeah. Well, he's From the soil all the way up to the sky. What was his, uh, he didn't coin biome. What did he coin? Hey. Randall? <laughs> He would have known before. Know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, 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 in the land, old days, Randall would have known. But the land ethic and that, that I mean, and, and Leopold is my, he's my hero um, in ways that you know, I don't take, fully uh, understand. He used to take out his recurve and take 70-yard shots at deer just to see if he could hit them. <laughs> yeah, there's a book. I can't. There's a later book of his words. He that, used to. Just see if he could hit him. Yeah. There's a later book of his where there's, he's hunting in New Mexico with some friend of his, and there's a lot of questionable shots. Oh, oh yeah. If now because, you just watched, if you just listen, saw him hunting now, you'd think he was a slob. This yeah, is the yeah. perfect, oh, yeah. perfect yes. segue if we wouldn't want to j- jump into the ethics thing. Oh, I thought we were talking about ethics. Oh, well, we talked about this idea of one of the things we talk about one of the themes rattle off a handful of themes and I'll, and I'll touch on this quick, but I want to get, I want to get to Randall too. Um, the patrilineal passage of hunting. So we had, yeah, Yanni had this idea and we just, you know, conversations like movies going their own direction. Um, Yanni started bringing up a bunch of the themes that we explore in the movie and we're just, Yanni's going to throw them out and I'm going to give a handful of snapshots and then we're going to move into Talking to uh, talking to Randall, but yeah, so we explore like patrilineal descent being that's how mo- like just I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the way things should be. I'm just talking about the way they are. Ninety percent of the people that buy a hunting license in this country are men, and most of those pick it up from their dad. We talk about that, and then we talk about cases that aren't that. And, and and it's this sort of this chorus of characters talking about what it like what it was that pushed them in this direction, and and I oftentimes find the the ones that are most interesting are the ones that aren't just the same old same old, which is like, you hung because your dad hunted, mm-hmm. you hung because your dad hunted, yeah, you hung because your dad hunted, you hung because your dad hunted, Randall, no, my dad didn't hunt. There you go. See, mm. we're um we're statistically skewed right now. There should be nine of us. <laughs> there should be <laughs> one of you. And one of you. 
Uh, no, no, that's not true. That's not. No, that's not. That, that uh, I, I'm, I'm mixing not, that up with the. I'm mixing that up with the with the with the gender thing. Rattle off another one real quick, Johnny. Uh, Hunter's PR problem. Yeah, the way in the movie we get into try to explore this idea of the way a hunter experiences their actions and activities and the way those actions and activities look to people who are not that they are seeing there's a, there's a really good book have you guys read, read Milan Kundera Kundera's book The Unbearable Lightness of Being it's a good book there's a guy and his girlfriend in this novel and and she was from the Soviet bloc and, and he's not and they talk about when they see a parade when they watch a parade what she thinks when she sees a parade mm-hmm. and what he thinks when he sees a parade same thing but they it conjures very different <laughs> very yeah. different emotions in them um so we get into that a little bit um the uh the question like why have ethics become so intertwined with today's hunting yeah meaning um you know if you go back to the first people the the first siberians that came into the new world the western hemisphere what's now the u.s um what was their more did did they feel uh was there an ethical conundrum (laughs) Was the sadness there? Or other animals that are alive now on our planet. Yeah. Is there sadness when the wolf, when that elk finally bleeds out and dies? Is the wolf like, dude, I'm always kind of bummed. <laughs> I imagine the fact that, like, <laughs> ancient man didn't have a, a choice is a major mitigating factor. And if you look at, you know, we don't explore this fully at all, but if you look at, there was also like kind of a hallmark of indigenous hunter gatherer cultures. And this is something Robert Jones brings up and he winds up contradicting himself. It's not in the movie, but someday I'd like to release the whole interview. He winds up contradicting himself because he's okay with indigenous hunting. Yet his point is that animal doesn't care about your things that he kept telling me, like you, you talk about ethics, but animals don't care about your ethics. They're getting killed. They feel pain and they die. They don't care what kind of trip you're on. Yet, he expresses to me being okay with indigenous hunters because it has religious connotations for them. And I'm like, the animal doesn't know it has religious con- connotations. You're contradicting what you just told me. Mm-hmm. And maybe yeah. I feel something that's borders on the religious. But it's a thing where like people that are anti-hunters oftentimes have to find these ways to make other things that they feel should be okay, okay. And a thing that's hard for them to explain is it's hard for them to be like, well, how, why can indigenous people hunt? Because they don't want to say they can't because it's like colonialism. But you wonder why then, like, mm. how, how, like, it brings it all the way back around to what we were just talking about with Leopold and, like, Pope and Young, right? There's plenty of stories of those boys going out on hunting trips with hundreds of arrows because they were known to <laughs> fling at uh, distances now that even the best archers think are long and far with today's equipment, right? And so even in that short period of time, what is that? When, when, when did Pope and Young come around, like... I think the like four. The I could no, no, no. Was it, was it that? It could have been, like, re- weirdly early, too, but I want to... Either way, within the last hundred, up, within the last hundred years, right? So look where the hunting ethics has come in that short period of time. Yeah, or just some of the classic gun writers that are oh. lobbing bullets out there, right. Taking shots with a yeah, Jack yeah, that's, that's why we call Yanni Yanni O'Connor. <laughs> yeah. Yanni O'Connor, not, not because I lob shots. <laughs> Maxi lob shots. We call him Yanni Van's Wall too. But um, <laughs> well, yeah, Yanni O'Connor, Jack O'Connor. 
he they'd like roll up on a group of bighorns and just everyone and start shooting. Mm-hmm. And they go and they're like, oh my gosh, we wound up with four. Well, there's also, I mean, this is going 1961, back a little further. Pope and Young. Was it that late? Yeah. Wow. No, really? Yeah. But that's that's the uh, that's when it became an official club. Pope and Young themselves, I think, were doing things prior to that. But the Pope and Young Club came. Saxton and Art, right? Mm-hmm. I think so. Yeah, because Boone and Crockett Club was early 1880s. All right, Randall. Yes. So that am I doing any justice, Yanni, on, on the themes? You get the point. I want to move on to Randall though, since we got him here. Yeah, those boys are hunting together. Just to wrap it all up, 19. 11, 12, in, in those years. I hope they like each other. They liked each other because they're like nuts on a dog now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, they're just together, you know? Um, Randall, if you had to like a one to 10, if you had a sliding scale of, of one to 10 and you had to uh, rate our job of capturing what you had to say on a one to 10, where are we? Four or five? Where are we? Like, when you watched it, like, what was your level of disappointment? Oh, I, I was thrilled. You were thrilled? Yeah. You weren't disappointed? No, I mean, we had... So we talked to you a lot. Yeah, we did one interview <laughs> that was probably like three and a half hours and one that was probably two-something, and... Uh, Someday when we release all these, as just a giant transcription. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I, clean, I'll mean, clean them up. I, you know, like, I... I I walked away from each one of those interviews feeling kind of punch drunk. Like, did I really say that that way? Or did I get it backwards? Or did I flip that? You know, did I actually get across what I was trying to say? And and when I pressed play on the documentary for the first time, my hope was that I would just make sense and that I wouldn't say something that was categorically false or outrageous. Um, and I thought I... I thought I came out pretty good. <laughs> Can you tell people what it is you did that first put you on our radar? Yeah, so I did a um, a PhD in history at the University of Montana, and my dissertation was a study of hunting in American politics and culture in basically the second half of the 20th century. Called? Green Voters, Gun Voters. Um hunting in American politics and culture in the 20th century, I think. Do we know that that was the title Yeah, back in the day? You yeah. knew that? I knew that. Um, yeah, it's not published. He was I, ahead of his time. <laughs> I, it's not published. I started working as an editor after that, and at the end of the day, I just wanted to put away the computer and not look at another Word document, so I never kind of picked it back up. Um, did you uh did they did you get your little piece of paper that says PhD? I did. Yeah. I did. And I I just realized the other day I have no idea where that is. <laughs> no one's asking. I was to looking see at it? I was looking at my wife's degree on the wall and I was like, man, I don't I don't really know where that, that went. <laughs> no one said <laughs> no one said to you, uh, prove it. And you've had to go and you've had to go get it. No. Like, if I, I, no. If I, I didn't have a PhD, how would I have this? <laughs> I have two PhDs and I don't know where one is. Ah, this is a good joke. <laughs> don't tell this joke. No. I only have one. one. I only have one. One of, one of my pretty uh, huge. Don't tell this joke. <laughs> Go on, Randall. Um, so yeah. Is that going to get cut? No, because you, oh, no. you didn't tell. You didn't tell the joke. You just, you I, was gonna, I was actually going to alert 
uh, Randall, to check in with you about your joke later. <laughs> you, you, use that, you use that line on me in the first podcast. I think that's – I, I learned I'm, that from a girl I was dating, and she learned it on the TV show Friends. Is that right? Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that, that Friends was, like, risque. Yeah. I don't, Man, I had a girlfriend that loved that show. <laughs> Go on. Yeah. Um, yeah, so – Basically, I um, as part of my research, I just looked at hunting and fishing magazines over the course of like 60-some-odd years and looked at other public representations of hunting and hunting where it popped up in the news or in other, um, you know, forms of popular culture, like when uh, Sesame Street in the 70s or 80s does something on hunting, what does that look like? Or... Um, how are hunters represented in Looney Tunes, things like that. So just basically tried to um, digest this huge volume of material and think about um, how hunters have represented themselves over time and what others have thought of hunters and the um, the dialectic between those two things and how that's evolved in this period in which hunting's place in popular culture has really changed a lot. Have you ever seen that cartoon where it's like, it's not part of Looney Tunes or anything, but it used to be on like Saturday morning once in a while where it's like deer hunting and it's just like people shooting each other and stuff. It was all like from the fifties. From the fifties. And like one of there's in the embedded in it is like an ad for the mother-in-law deer hunting suit. And it's like, she puts it on. And it's a deer suit, so she gets it's so she gets shot. shot. Yeah, and then a guy in that same cartoon, a guy shoots a buck, and then says to his buddy, "I got one that's got antlers like this." And he gets shot. And holds his head, holds his hands up to show the antlers, and then his friend shoots him. Yeah, and there's one. I don't know the lead, I don't remember the lead up, but it ends up with like. The deer's driving the car, and he's strapped to the bumper. There's you a hunter. You yeah, haven't seen this? I haven't seen that. No. Oh. And, and I, I said before Sesame Street, what I'm thinking of, I think, is the Muppets. And there's like a scene in the Muppets um, that I came across where that Buffalo Springfield song, like, stop, oh, what's yeah, that yeah. sound? You know? That's one of my and, few and it's like vivid these, memories of the, these, of the Muppets. These animals that. are yeah, walking yeah. through the forest, and... There are hunters there, and whenever it's Stop. stopped, they yeah, start shooting. Oh, and, I don't remember that. Yeah, and they're, they're like these these hunters are creeping through the woods looking for the animals. And it, yeah, and it's like a protest anthem, so it has that yep. sort of yeah. cultural By resonance. a band that's named after a rifle. Yep. Yeah. I talk about that in my Buffalo book, Buffalo Springfield, huh. and what that name what that name's all about. Um, I teach my kids to recognize anti-hunting bias in the things that they look at and they're good oh at, my, my, my boys my boy is good at picking it up and we talk about yeah. it in children's literature it is almost i don't want to say daily but weekly i bet you i got i got to just like stop and be like okay girls let's just think about what this book just said and like really go through it and and dissect it because no wild animals don't need our help and you don't have to put food on the windowsill so that the birds will continue to live like, what in the world? That's why you got to read your kids <laughs> Light in the Forest, Hatchet, My Side of the Mountain, no, Possum. There's plenty of books out there, man. The worst anti-hunting show is, um, one of the worst anti-hunting shows is Wildcrats. Hmm. I haven't seen it. That show. <laughs> All right, we got to keep moving. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
So what's the on this on a sliding scale? All of your complex ideas. We kind of mostly just had you be like a little bit of a demographics guy and a little bit of a Roosevelt guy. Yeah, I was fine with that. Really? Yeah, yeah. Um, I felt there's so many people. I, it's it's funny because there's so many people <laughs> that I feel um like getting into. It, I didn't know what I was getting into. You know, I didn't know how hard it was gonna. Like I didn't. I just knew I wanted to capture, like, we were going to go capture tons of stuff. Yeah. And then I knew that, you know, I've watched hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of movies. I know how long they are. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't put those two things together. Like, I didn't, I, I didn't think about, I wasn't thinking about, um, I was thinking about it, I wasn't thinking it was going to be like like Ken Burns' Civil War or something. Yeah. But I never, I wasn't thinking, I knew what it was going to wind up being. It was going to be like a, like a 90 minute whatever. Right. And I I wasn't picturing, that's why I want to do another one someday. I wasn't imagining <laughs> what would happen to all of these ideas. Yeah. Not only that, like, that, you you need to like simplify things and pare it down for a couple reasons so that the viewer could understand mm-hmm. and then you also have this sense of allegiance to the subject mm-hmm. and you're like I, I i can't have the subject say 10 things incompletely yeah i'm going to have to find they're just going to have to say two things in a way that makes sense yeah no I, rather I, than letting them right the giving them sound bites about tons of stuff it's like i got there's just got to be like a, like if you're going to boil it down, what are some things? And then the problem with like with friends and there's so many friends of mine in it. Yeah. You know, Rogan's in it. Robert Abernathy's in it. I don't want to point, like, I don't want to pose these as problems. They're problems only in my head because they're not problems for someone that watches the film. And I really want yeah. people to go watch the film. Cause I do, yeah. I, I like, I like, I want people to see and experience it. So there's the thing we keep talking about like these things. And then mm-hmm. there's like ways you perceive them. There's the thing. And the thing as a freestanding entity is something I want people to see. I can't watch it without all of the the noise in my head. And part of the noise in my head is like I had these friends who have really interesting experiences. Like like Matt, who's sitting here, has this very refreshing, like everything out of Matt's mouth is delights me. Yeah. Like everything he says delights me. Likewise. So <laughs> um Doug, you know. Like Doug's like this generous, beautiful person with kind of this like a way to express to explain his life in the way that's very moving and instructive, right? And you have this like really cohesive view of something that's really complicated and uh, like a, a real knack for sort of explaining this activity that is so influenced by history and influenced by demographics and sort of like making it seem like a picture, you know, like like presenting it and and. I'm friends with you guys, and so then to put you there, I'm also like, well, I want them to look like what I see when I see them. It's just, it, it's just complicated, man. Oh yeah, I'm like uh, kind of haunted by the, pro- I'm haunted and, and, by the process. Well, I think that's, I think that's, that's, why that's... I'm good. I'm, I'm, so I'm glad to be sitting here talking because I want to make sure we're cool. Yeah, no, <laughs> we're all good. And this we're, also we're goes out as an apology to all those other people that we interviewed <laughs> that didn't make the cut. Well, I no, I mean. I, a lot of what you're saying resonates with me because when I um, worked on my dissertation, you're telling a story and you're trying to explain something through the storytelling process and you have to choose a beginning and an end and an arc to it. And 
you can't compress everything in there. And um, so that's like, when I go back and look at my dissertation, I remember all the things that started to become threads that I wanted to weave into this. And I had to, I had to cut them. Um, and I have, you know, boxes and boxes of photocopies and notes and things like that, that have been traveling around with me for a couple of years. And, um, and they're all little things that I wanted to cram into that. Um, because when I read what I wrote, I think like, man, it's, it's more complex than that. There are several other layers that I need to, to weave into this thing. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, I think, especially with, you know, I'm lucky because I, I didn't have a page limit. Um, but when you're making a documentary film, obviously there's that window of time that you have to fit it into. And it doesn't matter how good the stuff you get is. Um, you have to make those really, really tough choices. You know, the criticism we got early on about the movie, which I would have thought would have been a compliment, but it was always issued as a criticism is it doesn't come down hard enough on anything. It feels too open-ended. And I always want to be like, uh, good. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I... I uh, they, they, people want it to be like a, like, a, like a Michael Moore kind of thing. I try not to surround myself with people who come down hard on stuff. <laughs> like, there's... What's the point? You know, and uh, to the point earlier about having this animal ethicist as a leading figure in the documentary, like having an open exchange of ideas and questioning your own ideas and reflecting on what you really think or what you really believe or what values you have. Like if you just are in an echo chamber and you're, you know, talking about the people on the outside or you're talking about how great the people in this room are, what are you really doing? <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it it's, not a, a, it's not a real serious intellectual exercise. And so I, yeah, I'm, you could have made a movie of people saying, dude, if we don't kill all the deer, we'll get overrun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I think like, you know, one other thing too is like, uh, it's really easy to like write a book review or a movie review and, and slam it. Like, and this is something that at least in graduate school, you could recognize people who are starting to write book reviews, they just trash everything or it's the greatest thing they've ever read. But it takes, you know, it takes, yeah. it takes a lot more effort to, to, you know, pick something apart and ask questions of it and go back and revisit it and chew on it. And, and that ultimately generates, you know, more questions. Yeah. More like when you hear like a film reviewed on NPR, you're like, I can't tell if that dude really liked it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know? No, I think that's you like... Know, he might not want to bore his listeners with whether he liked it or not. Yeah, right. Yeah. No, you know, I, real I, but criticism I always want to know because I'm like, well, I mean, if this is his job. If he liked it, I'll probably, I might be more inclined to see it. Yeah. Yeah. You if know, your I, goal I, was to be thought-provoking, I think he succeeded there. I think everybody can't agree on that, right? Well, that's for sure. Yeah, and it's... I don't know. It's It's nice to see something that, like... Hunting, as you're saying, is often portrayed as this cartoonish activity. And you're either the hero or you're the villain. And that's not the reality of it. And so to see this like nuanced um, exploration of what we're all doing and why we do it and why we think we do it, why we may actually do it, um, I don't know. I, I found that refreshing. It'd be interesting to like 
hear what, I don't know, 10 people from various uh, walks of life that don't hunt, what, what, did, what, did, did anything change in their perception of hunting as a if consequence? If you could make so. them, if you could take people who were ambivalent or hostile to hunting and somehow force them to watch it and then do a post-interview, yeah, I could set that up. I just haven't done it yet, but it'll be interesting to do it. We should you know, definitely do it. For sure. And you know, well, I don't know if I need to hear it now. Maybe when the making of it, I would have been interested to hear, but now it's like, oh, the I ship don't think sailed. for that would be the reason oh. that I would do it. Uh, you know, remember how I began? You want you want to see some full circle, right? You want to see what, like, uh, as long as you're going to allow me to to do a concluding question, you can do yes. a concluding question. You want to see me bring something full circle? Yep. Remember how, uh, earlier I mentioned, uh, Ian Frazier. What did I say about Ian Frazier earlier? He starts his books with Oh, he likes to tell people is, right away yeah. in his books what they're yeah. about. He thinks people start reading the book, they want to know what it, they don't want to wait to find out what <laughs> yeah. it's about. He also told me this. When he's writing, he's a nonfiction writer. And when he's writing and he's profiling people, he'll get this feeling that they're not going to like what he's writing. And he always um, mitigates that by giving a very flattering physical description of them <laughs> <laughs> which he says usually can undoes any harm they're like you know i really like that you know i really liked what you had to say about our conversation uh i didn't need to do that with you guys because it's a movie and so people can see yeah just how wonderful you all are by going to Vimeo and watching Stars in the Sky. Holy cow, did he did you just see how good? Around. Did you wow, see how that, that was, was? That is, that's from and, years of. Uh, that's why you do what you and do. And we see from Doug years on of the show screen, business. just picture him with a little more gray in his beard. Yep. And yeah. Doug, just imagine, you see Doug now, just imagine him when he looked younger. It'd be, it'd be even better <laughs> if you just went to starsinthesky.film.com. And bought it there, washed it there. That was a little more blunt, Yanni. But yeah, that's good. <laughs> we, we could, but then we could, we could track your, we could track your watching better, and we could report numbers to people that give a shit, and it would help us out. So it helps us a lot. What's the question? Starsinthesky.film.com. You told me when you first started doing this that, like, really the end goal was to do it well enough so that you would be allowed to make another one. Well, that's the Woody Allen maxim. Yes. But you, all of his movies you, were good enough that they let him make another one. Right. <laughs> but you thought that that would be like a a, a, um, a measure of success. Yeah. So do we know that now? And, or if not, how long will it be until we know? I'll make another movie. I'll make another movie. Um, But just my circumstances are such that it, like, it doesn't matter. I'll just find a way. I would like to make another movie. And uh, yeah. All right. I'll write more books and I'm going to make another movie. I don't know if it's going to be because someone let me or if it's just going to wind up being just because <laughs> I... going to do it. If someone let me or if it was going to wind up being just because I went and did it. But yeah, I love it. That's my favorite. Um, if, I, if I had to... To be honest with you, if I had to pick a... Medium? A medium. If, if God came down and put a gun to my head and made me pick a one medium, one thing that I could take in for the rest of my life, it would be films. And if he really subdivided it out, I would say documentaries. Hmm. Yeah. Because even if I went blind, I could still listen to him. And if I went deaf, I could watch him. Good point. Tell him that website again, Yanni. Starsinthesskyfilm.com. <laughs> <in the> <laughs> wow. All right, everyone. Thank you so much, guys, for coming down. I really do love you guys. 
Love and you, you people listening. Yep. I meant I was talking about these guys, but you guys too. I don't know them, but oh, you'd love them if you got to know them. <laughs> <laughs> Hey guys, turkey season is in full swing right now, and if you are planning on getting after it, make sure to pick up some Meat Eater Phelps turkey calls to stuff into the old turkey vest or into your fanny pack right now. I carry a few different things. I like to use mouth calls, and I like to use pot calls. Mouth calls or diaphragms, I like them because it gives you hand-free calling, meaning when you're working a bird up close, you can have your gun on your knee, finger on the trigger, ready to roll, and still be making turkey sounds. I like pot calls. I just like pot calls. I enjoy calling with a pot call. Whatever direction you go, including a box call, which I don't personally use too much, but they're fun and great, and I started out with them. Yanni, on the other hand, one of my main turkey hunting buddies, he loves box calls. And what's funny is I'll now and then look to him and give him the look that means get out your box call and find us a turkey. So it's not that I don't like them. I just have Yanni use his. Then I don't have to carry it. Go to Phelps Game Calls. Get calls that are made in the USA and get calls that'll get them close. Find yours at phelpsgamecalls.com today.